Amen. It is, again, a great joy to be gathered together to worship. You know, as we think about the Reformation, we, we have to think and remember about those who gave their very lives for the sake of the gospel and to defend the truth, and that ought to embolden us. We ought to look to their examples and be encouraged and exhorted to think about those who but because of the legal implications and ramifications of true Christian faith, were, were ultimately called by the Lord to give their lives for the sake of holding to, defending, and proclaiming the entire truth of God's Word. So may we not let that be, be missed on us on this day and over the next couple of days as we ought to take time to remember those who have given given everything for the sake of the gospel. Our task today is to consider the divine adopting love of God. The divine adopting love of God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I believe that these are some of the most glorious verses in all of Holy Scripture. All of God's Word is inspired and profitable for our teaching and correction and reproof and to train us in righteousness, but the glories of this passage are incredibly weighty. They are incredibly encouraging as we look to what we just read about, that citizenship that we have in heaven. In these verses, the Lord lays forth for us the glorious work of salvation, past, present, and future. And you remember John is now in this short section, we began last time in chapter 2, verse 28, where he's drawing his reader's attention to Christ's imminent return. He's taking them from the present and pointing them to the future and telling them about the present implications of that future return of Christ. And in the infinite wisdom of God, as we consider the future return the Lord, through the Spirit, just drives this, this wonderful picture of how that future glory drives present holiness. So again, the title is The Divine Adopting Love of God, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you would, let's stand together as we give honor and attention to the reading of God's Word. This is holy and inerrant inspired scripture. This is God's word to us, his people. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts for the glory of his name and the sanctification of our souls. You may be seated. Now let's bow together in a word of prayer.
Our great God, we come before you and we praise your mighty and holy name. For you are, as declared in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, I pray that you would strike our hearts with that sobering humility that we see in that picture where we are just completely undone by your holiness. But Lord, may we also remember the great, glorious redemption that is ours in Christ. So may we be humbled at the thought of your holiness. May we be emboldened by the consideration of the finished work of our salvation. Lord, those two truths do not stand alone. We know that there still remains a great work of progressive sanctification that you accomplish in your people. Lord, we know and understand that you leave us to travel this sod because you are still conforming us presently to the image of Christ. And Lord, as was recovered by the great reformers and continues on now, we pray through the ages, the way that you conform us through Christ to Christ is through your word, your sufficient, powerful, supreme word. Lord, may we be a people of the book, a people submitted to the authority of Scripture, not just submitted corporately, those whose individual lives strive after obedience to your commands. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the glorious, divine adopting love that you have poured out upon us through Christ. Pray, Lord, today that you would captivate our mind's attention and our heart's affection with that very thought. That those sinners, we are joint heirs with the Savior. Lord, we pray and we ask that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in us today. Know that your means of sanctification is through the word, through the truth. We also know that if we strive to walk in that act and that work without your spirit, that we will fail and fail utterly. Lord, we pray and we ask for your spirit's help. Pray that the word spoken would be clear. Pray that you would... Use the truth before us to convict our hearts. Pray that we would all be vessels that are humble and eager and ready to receive the truth, to apply it to the ends of glorifying your great name. We pray that you would fix our gaze on Christ. Pray that you would make us to be bold proclaimers of the gospel. Pray that we would always look to the Savior, no matter the hardship, no matter the blessing, 
no matter the weariness, no matter the mountaintop, may we always look to Christ. Lord, I pray that again, you would accomplish this through your spirit. For we are weak and frail, and we are unable to accomplish the task before us today in our own strength. Lord, you're strong, you're mighty, you're able to save, you're able to sanctify, and you're able to keep all those who are yours through divine, eternal election. We pray that those purposes would be accomplished today. We ask this for the glory of your name through the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So as we come to this text today, um, you probably are familiar with verse 3. It's one of, I think, one of the most quoted verses that we hear today, this idea that those who hope in Christ will purify themselves just as he is pure. But what we must see is that verse 3 is the culminating summary of this short paragraph. These verses read together like a series of building blocks, and the glory of verse 3 can only be seen in light of verses 1 and 2. We'll see that the Lord's adoption of us separates us out from the world. And when we're separated out from the world, that will bring difficulty and hardship. And it causes us then to look to the future glory that is ours in Christ. And when you look to that future glory, John says, that transforms your life today. That is not something that is ineffective. You don't look to your future glory and then remain in your sin. You don't look to your future glory and remain slothful and remain unconcerned with eternal spiritual things. No, you hope in Christ, and as you hope in Him, you're purified just as He is pure. And thus, the the exhortation that we see, the encouragement that we see in verse 3 is absolutely there, and it can absolutely stand on its own, but it will be clearer, and it will have deeper implications in our lives when we see it based on verses 1 and 2. So you can say that John's theme and his aim here is to show us the great and separating and hopeful and purifying nature of the Lord's love bestowed to us in Christ. This is an eternal love whereby the Lord elects saints and he holds them and he drives them And he keeps them. He calls us out from the world. He separates us from the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be shining lights, an example, a city set upon a hill. The Lord's love causes the world to reject us because it rejects our Savior. We are not to try to earn the affection or the attention or the acceptance of the world, but we live holy, set-apart lives. Ultimately, beloved, we are striving toward heaven. We're striving toward our eternal future glory, 
And that striving toward heaven, toward future glory, it transforms everything about your life today. Everything. Not some of it. Not most of it. Transforms all of it. So to draw down to a summary, kind of a, a thesis and purpose statement, we can see that God's adopting love in Christ produces in us a distinct separation from the world. It produces in us a future hope of glory, and it produces a present conformity to the example of Jesus. God's adopting love separates us from the world, produces a future hope of glory, and both of those are seen that the outworking of that is this present conformity to Christ. So since it's Reformation Day, or Reformation Sunday, I decided that we could have four points instead of three, even though there's only three verses. So I want to begin by looking at divine adoption. Divine adoption at the beginning of verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. What a great love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Now really, this is the crescendo of the text. This is the, the, the cornerstone, the, the main building block of the text. And really, it's the cornerstone and the main building block of the Christian faith. The divine adopting love of God. The fact that in eternity past, He called you. He set you apart. He loved you. You are an elect saint of God. If it's not for that, you are still in your sins and you don't have a hope. But Paul says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. If your future is not secured in eternity past by the electing love of God, then all the future you have is a terrifying judgment rather than a sure and certain hope. To those in Christ, God love has been, God's love has been poured out, has been made manifest. He has set you out because He loves you. Because of His kindness, He chose you. Because of His love, He has adopted you. Because of His mercy, He has saved you. This is the divine love of God. And, and so, with that in mind, John kind of shows us two aspects of our salvation, that it is given to us, it is bestowed upon us through Christ, and that God has made us His children through Christ. So, His love is poured out on us in Christ, and He loves us to the end that He makes us His children in Christ. So, think about that first statement. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Give you a couple cross references that really make this clear. Firstly, it's John 3:16. We all know the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. How great is the love of the Father? He sent his only son his beloved, the one who has been with him from eternity past, he sent him to redeem the world. Paul said in Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God is for us, who is against us? 
He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Consider the great love of God that he sent his beloved son. You realize the Lord's holiness could not afford sin to enter his presence. His justice could not allow the penalty of sin to be just wiped away and annulled. So he sent his son, his beloved son, to come to redeem a people, to take the curse and the penalty of our sin, to call us and to draw us to himself. And that leads into to the next cross-reference to consider. It's 1 John 4, verse 10. You might just have to look over one page for that. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. John, how did He show us this love? He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So it's not just that He loved us. It's not just that he sent his son for us. It's not just that he sent his son to die for us. But he sent him to be the sacrifice, the holy, unblemished lamb to bear the full weight of our sin. To die as an appeasing, covering, redeeming sacrifice. That is the great love of the Father given to us in Christ. You know, propitiation in some ways is difficult to define, not because the term is unclear, but because it's so broad in what it accomplishes. When you consider Christ as the propitiation, the one who satisfies the wrath of the Father, MacArthur wrote this, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfied the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. It satisfied the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. MacArthur then concludes, so Jesus propitiated or satisfied God. He, he took the weight of God's wrath, and he did it as a perfect sacrifice. It wasn't just a lamb poured out. It wasn't a sinful person saying, sure, I'll go to a cross and be crucified. No, it was the spotless, perfect, holy, precious lamb of God going to the cross to take your sins in a way that you could never take them. The eternal Son of God bearing an eternal curse. And this is the great love of the Father, and it's the great love of the Son. The Son submitted Himself to human flesh, eternally existing with God, eternally existing as God. The Creator takes on the form of of his creatures. Human words fail to understand the enormity of God's wrath poured out upon his son. Human words fail. But I think the words of the Savior upon the cross can really highlight for us what was being experienced. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The beloved only begotten Son of the Most High, all the pain, all the suffering, all the physical hardship that he went through, and as he bears the penalty, do our sin, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
remembering the high cost of our sin should affect our lives today. Because every sin you commit today and for the rest of your life had to be paid for. Every crossword, every act of lust, every lie, every word of slander, every ungrateful attitude, every sin had to be paid. Every sin, if you were in Christ, was laid upon him at the cross and and caused him to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is the great love of the Father bestowed upon us in Christ. But that's only part of our divine adoption. You start to see the glory of this passage. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. You are a child of God if you are in Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John says, As many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right, the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave you the right. That means the legal power and authority to be called a child of God. This is the doctrine of adoption, that you who were once children of Satan now have the legal right, the legal authority to proclaim yourself because of the work of God in Christ to be a child of the Most High. Think about what Paul writes in Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is what your adoption means. You are heirs of God and heirs with Christ. Well, what does that mean? Hebrews 1-2 says that Christ is the heir of all things. Do you consider the depth then and the glory of what the Lord has called you to? You who were a sinner, you were an enemy of God. You were constantly at war with Him, making war with Him, sinning against Him. And yet He loves you. He placed that sin upon Christ. He doesn't just bring you to net neutral. He doesn't just say, you can come sit in the outer courts of my heaven. He says, you are a joint heir with the heir of all things. The divine, glorious adoption of God. All the privileges of Christ you will one day share. Now, you will not become a god, big G or little g, in any way. There is heretical teaching that says we will. You will not. But you will share in all the privileges of Christ. You have a full share in his future glory and his future reign. All of that is because of God's great love for you. It's because eternity past, he looked and he didn't see this good, strong, disciplined person who would walk in righteousness and do and accomplish much for his glory. No, he looked and saw a sinner. He looked and saw an enemy. But he loved you. He 
elected you. He chose you. He calls you out. He sanctifies you. And one day, He will glorify you. This is the divine adopting love of God. So again, the, the passage really kind of it hits the high point right there. And, and we could almost just close in prayer and, and call it a, a day, come to the table, and, and then go home. But we need to see the rest of the outworking of this passage. So look at the second part of verse 1 and see how the divine adoption of God then produces and creates in us a worldly separation. For this reason, John says, the world does not know us because it did not know him. You start to see here that in our adoption, we are fully united to, united with Christ. John says it's for this reason. It's for the reason that you are one with Christ, that you are a child of God and a joint heir with Jesus. It's for this reason that the world does not know you. The world hates you. The world rejects you. So let's kind of work from a top level down and consider this worldly separation. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The top level down is that it did not know him. John 1, 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John 15 and 16, that night before Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion, he repeatedly told his disciples, the world doesn't know me. The world doesn't know my Father. They're not going to know you. They reject me. They're going to reject you. This was sinful, willful ignorance and rejection. The world did not know its Creator because it chose to obstinately remain in its sin. That's Romans 1 in a nutshell. The world suppresses the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. It's not that the world doesn't see God. It's that in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth because they're evil, and they want to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. This is worldly folly at its pinnacle. This is sin at its darkness. This is rejection of the truth, rejection of God at its clearest. And dear friends, when you see this level of rejection, there is but one remedy. When you see how far the world goes to reject Christ, do you realize that all we have to turn the world back to the Savior is the truth of the gospel? You can water it down, you can soften the gospel But when there is this outright rejection of Christ, you know what a softened gospel is going to do? It's going to lead the world deeper and deeper into their sin. Because they don't love this Savior. They don't want this Savior. They don't want to hear of their need for a Savior. So all you will do is heap more condemnation on their head if you soften or cheapen or water down the gospel of Christ. You see, John says here that the world did not know Jesus, and and that's true, and that's, of course, accurate and right. It's on the pages of Holy Scripture. But I want you to also realize that the world doesn't just not know him, and we need to understand that the world rejects him. The world hates him. It's not enough for the worldly system just to be ignorant 
of the Savior because so much of creation shows the glory of God. The world not only is ignorant, but it rejects. It pushes away. They hate Christ because they hate his truth. That's what Jesus said. In John 15, he had, in verse 22, he just said the world hates him, and he said, if I had not come into the world and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Why does the world hate Jesus? Because they have no excuse for their sin, because he has revealed perfect righteousness. The world hates Christ because his life and his ministry reveals their utter darkness. This is the point at which we need to drive back to John's statement now. He says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. So it did not know Christ, and it also does not know us. There's that direct parallel. The world's response to Christ will be its response to those who follow him. As the world rejected Christ, it will reject us. As it hated Christ, it will hate us. If you stand upon the truth, and this is so evident, this is so clear in our day, if you stand upon the truth, you will be hated, maligned, and worldly people, quite frankly, will try to wreck and ruin and destroy your life. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. If you were sinful and running headlong into sin, the world will accept you. You can justify any and every kind of vile wickedness to the world because they want to stand with open arms to affirm every kind of sin because if you affirm every sin, you don't have to be guilty for your own sin. Christ said, I called you out of the world, and thus the world will hate you. Now, the church today, and you'd say the true church and maybe an air quotes church as well, is disliked for many reasons. Beloved, may the reason that we are disliked by the world may it be because we stand upon the truth and we proclaim the gospel. May it be because we don't let sin go unchecked. May it be because we firmly and boldly proclaim the gospel and then we receive repentant sinners. We love them when, when, when people turn from their sin it's not that, that they're just kind of left out in the cold, but they're welcomed into the family of God. So what we need to take from this more than anything is understanding that the Christian is separated from the world. The Christian life is one that is separated from the world. You can try all you want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, but all that will bring you is hardship and misery. Now, any foot in the world is going to bring you hardship and misery. But when you try to have a foot in the church and a foot in the world, the world's going to hate you if you ever try to bring any truth to bear. 
So if you're going to take this path of one foot in the world and one foot in the church, I'll tell you what you need to go ahead and prepare yourself to be, and that's a coward because you can't hold to the truth and be liked by the world. The world has nothing to offer. Dear friends, do you realize Satan will bring to you every temptation Satan probably knows you better than you could know yourself, and he knows your weakness. He knows what might tempt you to to go chase after sin. He will solicit you into all kinds of fleshly things. But any pleasure that brings you is temporary and fleeting, and it never brings true fulfillment. It's not godly pleasure. It's a lustful fulfilling of the flesh. If you belong to the world, the world will love you. But if you belong to Christ, the world will hate you because it hates your Savior. And you ought to rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer for his name. One key then to draw out of this for Christian maturity, for for progressive sanctification, is that you must have no pleasure and no joy in worldliness or worldly things. Now, yes, you enjoy the blessings that the Lord gives us. If we receive his blessings with an ungrateful heart, that's sin. But you should take no pleasure in worldliness. You should guard yourself against worldliness. You should guard yourself. If you find yourself having too much fulfillment in worldly things, you need to take account of that in your life and be sure that, that you're not falling into sinful worldliness. So divine adoption produces worldly separation. That worldly separation, the world hates us, it brings and causes hardship, and our response to that is to consider our future glory. So divine adoption, worldly separation, and then future glory. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So this glorious adoption produces a great hope. What is the great hope? The great hope is that one day we will go to heaven and enjoy the glory of Christ forever and ever. And so in this one sense, our our future glory is known, it is established, it is understood that it will be eternity with Christ, perfected bodies, perfected worship, full and complete righteousness. So on this one hand, we understand our future glory, and we long for that future glory. That is what gives us hope, that's what helps our weary souls to press on toward the prize because we know what's coming is so much greater and so much better than what we experience now. But while it's known, understand that John also says we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There's a profound mystery at what the future holds. But I would argue that it's a profound and glorious mystery. Because it's glorious because you realize that this future is so great that you're finite 
temporal, limited mind cannot understand it. You are so limited by the weakness of your flesh that you can't understand, you can't comprehend the glory that is in store. Let us draw great hope and eager expectation for the future because we realize our eternal home is so grand, so glorious, that we can't comprehend it today. You know, uh, thinking about this, it kind of drew my mind back to childhood. You remember, some of you children understand this now as an adult. You can probably look back and think about those things that you so anticipated. You think about a vacation that you look forward to, or, or perhaps, you know, we're coming into the holiday season here soon. Perhaps it was Christmas. You look forward maybe to this one gift. And what I remember back to a lot of those things is they never really lived up to the expectation, right? You look forward to that trip or or to that holiday or to that event, and and yeah, it may have brought some temporary enjoyment, some, some lasting joy in the memories that you made, but it never continued forever. It always came to an end. Dear friend, heaven will not be like that. When we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. That is the glory of your future. You don't know exactly what it will be, but it will go forever and ever and ever. And it will never grow wearisome. You will never grow tired of worshiping at the feet of the Lord, of being in the presence of glory. We need to earnestly seek and long for heaven. Charles Spurgeon said, The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. The more of heaven that you have in your lives, the less that you will desire the things of this world. How much do you think about heaven? You know, we, we can't be stargazers that sit around on the rooftops all day looking for the return of Christ. But how much through your day do you think about and long for heaven and going to be with Christ and putting off the flesh and putting on that perfected, righteous, glorified body? Because the more of heaven you have, the less of earth you will covet. So we don't know what the future holds, but John gives us a glimpse. It's not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. You'll be like him because you'll see him exactly as he is. 2 Peter 1.4 says that you will become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Romans 8.29 says that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That is an actual conforming to the image of Christ. So what is your future? It's being conformed to Christ, being like him being a partaker of the perfect, sinless nature. Dear friends, how glorious it will be to put away the body of this death. How glorious it will be to no longer face and battle with sin and temptation. 
how glorious it will be to no longer battle disease and death. Do you realize death is the ultimate enemy? Death is the greatest gain that Satan made with sin. And yet the power of death, the sting of death and sin is abolished, crushed by the victorious work of Christ at the cross. The last enemy to be put away is death. And when Christ returns, dear friend, the last enemy will be done away with forever. And you will go and you will be with Christ. So may we long for this future glory. May we lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. May we run with perseverance and endurance the race that is set before us. And we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So there's the divine adoption, the Lord calling us and making us his own, that produces in us a separation from the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. The world hated Christ, and it will hate us. That lifts our eyes when we experience the hatred of the world around us. That lifts our eyes to the future glory that we have in Christ. And then we come to verse 3. We come to verse 3 and see the present purity that that produces. John writes, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, in in a lot of ways, friends, this verse should just kind of stand on its own. It should be kind of self-explanatory at this point because this purification flows out of your affection for and devotion to the Lord for all the glories that we've already seen. The Lord should not have to tell you, after showing you this great love, He should not have to tell you, put away sin, because He's shown you the glorious future that awaits, and that itself should purify you. But in case it doesn't, and no, it doesn't, because we're all in the flesh, John says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as Christ, just as he is pure. Hope in Christ produces conformity to Christ, period. When you hope in him, you will look and be like him. So many today who would call themselves Christians, who would identify themselves as followers of Christ, will dance around statements like this in every way imaginable to allow for carnal, fleshly living. You know, they may give you the argument that this is just talking about our our positional righteousness, that because we're in Christ, we are counted righteous, and all this talk of having to obey is just legalism and moralism and over-the-top desire to earn favor with God. But what does the text say? The scripture could not be clearer. Hope in Christ produces purity of life. Purifies here, the one who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself. Purifies is the Greek word hognizo. Jews in the present tense, the active voice and the indicative mood. And I know we're all Greek grammatical scholars, so let me tell you what my research tells us here. The present tense means that it's in process and ongoing. The active voice means that the subject here, 
everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that's the subject, that's you and me, and the active voice says that the subject is performing the action. The subject isn't Christ here. It's you and me. It's the ones who have their hope in him. So you're performing the action. The indicative mood means that it's something that's actually being done. Okay, so that's your Greek grammar. What, what about the Greek definition? Hognizo. It very plainly and very clearly means that which is pure and cleansed of defilement. Dear friends, this is not talking about positional purification. Praise the Lord that you are sanctified, you are counted righteous, you are justified in Christ. That transaction was complete at the cross. Praise the name of the Lord. But this is talking about present active purification, present active holiness. This hope that you have in Christ will and must produce holiness. That is, setting aside worldly desires and things and pleasures in pursuit of that which honors and pleases the Lord. And the flow of thought in this whole section should just be so indicative of how we instruct others to live the Christian life, how we instruct even our, our children to live the Christian life. This purification, this holiness of life is the high point. It is the culmination of the Lord's work in salvation. He adopts you. He sets you apart from the world. He shows you this future glory. And then after he does all that, he works in you through the Holy Spirit, and you pursue this holiness. If you're walking towards the eternal kingdom of righteousness, dear friend, your life will be conformed to the image of the king of that kingdom. You won't love and continue in your sin. You don't lazily allow yourself to fall into temptation time and time and time again. Yes, you will continue to sin. That's so clear in all of these stories of Scripture. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do, Paul wrote. But if your king is Christ, you will be pure. And being purified just as he is perfect and pure, and glorious. If you don't so utterly rely on this hope, perhaps it's that you don't actually have a hope fixed on Christ. Perhaps you actually love the world, and you're not being purified because you love the world. Does the hope that you claim to have in Christ, does it produce increasing faith in him? Does your hope produce increasing sanctification, increasing personal holiness? Or do you look at your life and say, you know, I'm committing the same sins today that I was a year ago or five years ago or, or almost a whole lifetime ago? It doesn't mean that you ever will become perfect, but there should be this progress, this increasing being cut off from sin, this increasing cutting off the arm of the flesh, this increasing purity and righteousness. And dear friend, again, I can't highlight and stress this enough. This all flows through the whole passage. 
all the way back to verse 1. Great love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. If you skip that, if you were to try to skip over the adopting love of God and the redeeming work of Christ, you could be separate from the world. You could think that you're looking toward a future hope and glory, and you could strive to be pure just as he is as pure, but you have missed the purpose. You have missed the mark. You are outside the faith. You must come in order through Christ, through the Lord's adoption. Same token, by the same token, if you were to claim, yes, I've been adopted. Yes, the Lord separated me out. Yes, He's given me this future hope of glory, but I don't really need this purification stuff. I don't really need this holiness. I don't really need to be made more righteous. Dear friend, again, you're missing the mark. You're outside the faith if that is the story of your life. We need to hope in the glorious adoption of the Father through Christ. We hope in that adoption by coming to Him in faith and repentance. Dear friends, we need to press on toward heaven. You need to fix your eyes upon Christ. You need to fix your eyes upon the future glory that we will experience. And as that is your hope, dear friend, purify yourself just as He is pure. Do it by walking in the Spirit, by submitting to His Word, and by asking Him to build a greater love for you, a greater desire to obey, a greater desire to walk in righteousness. Everyone who has this hope, this blessed, glorious hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as Christ is pure. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask that you would, as we often pray, that you would write your word upon our hearts. Pray that it would be clear to us. Pray that it would be convicting to us. Pray that it would encourage us that we would look to this glorious hope. Pray that we would remember and recall and praise you often for this divine adopting love that you've given us in Christ. Pray that we would understand that that produces a worldly separation that we cannot change. Pray, Lord, that we would be pure just as Christ is pure. Pray that by the powerful working of your Spirit that you would rebuke our sinful hearts. And pray, Lord, that you would cause your word to be true and active and living and cutting in our lives. And pray that we would be a people for your possession, set apart for your glory. That we would live as those who are a city set upon a hill whose light and lamp cannot be hidden. May we be faithful. May we stand firm. We pray all this for your glory and in Christ's name. Amen.